I would tie a string to my big toe and hang the string out the window. And when it was time to go to the beach in the morning, Robert and Doug and them would come yank on that string and wake my ass up. Podcast Junkies, bonus episode, three-year anniversary. A little late since the show launched in April 2014, but when I heard this conversation, I knew I had to do something special with it. It's with podcasting veteran um, and incredible storyteller, and you'll know why in a second, Mr. Gary Leland. I don't want to get too much into uh, any other regular show details, given that it is bonus, but I just want to thank every single person who's ever listened to the show, even if you only listened for a few seconds and you realized it wasn't for you and you've been a loyal listener from day one or you've jumped on board recently and you're a passionate super fan. Guys and gals, I cannot tell you how honored I am to be continue to be doing this. I, I never thought I'd uh, really thought about making it this far or even having a, a three-year celebration. There's so many stories, so much that has happened. It's crazy. I've actually built a business off of podcasting because I started Podcast Junkies. I've been to uh, several conferences. I've made lifelong friends uh, as guests, as fellow podcasters. The community is amazing. You are all amazing. Uh, and I and I really wanted uh, to do something special. And, and, the, and it was past April. And I was like, oh, man, what am I going to do? And then when I, when I wrapped up this interview, I almost knew immediately that it was going to be this. So... Enjoy this conversation. It, it's truly an honor, and this is why exactly I do this show, because of moments like this. You'll know what I'm talking about. So without further ado, my three-year anniversary celebration, my conversation with podcast legend and just all-around amazing guy, Gary Leland. So Gary Leland, Hall of Fame podcaster, thank you for joining me on Podcast Junkies. Yeah, glad to be here. Nice to be here. We had a hard time making this work, Harry, but we finally got the uh, got the time figured out. Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of times, if you're not clear about expectations, then then people maybe come and they may not know that there's going to be video, or they may not know how long it's going to be. But every time I do it, I learn a little bit. I learned something else about how I can better communicate to my guests. So when they get here, they're not surprised. Uh, I think because the last thing you want is a surprise when you're showing up as a guest on someone's show. Completely agree. <laughs> um, well, it's interesting. I, I was doing a little research, Gary, and obviously you're on here because I, I love having in-depth conversations with podcasters and especially veteran podcasters who've been doing it for as long as you have. But one of the things that struck me is that is really not, it doesn't paint an accurate picture of, of what you've done um, in your life. And, and just, I just want to go through this, clear, uh, this short list um, that I compiled, and I think it'll surprise a lot of people. Sure. But <laughs> at last check, um, you are the 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 creator of twenty six online stores, eight mobile apps, twenty two informational sites, six podcasts, six shows on the Fast Pitch Radio Network, eight video shows, nineteen books slash publications, and two retail stores. <laughs> so I'm wondering, like. Where does this drive? You obviously have this big, big drive to create. It's, it seems like it's embedded in you as like a, in your DNA. And where does that come from? I don't have any trouble coming up with ideas. That may be my trouble as I come up with too many ideas. <laughs> and I think maybe I'm, uh, my wife says I'm attention deficit, but I definitely get bored with things after I get them going. Mm-hmm. 
but I've never been able to sell anything. I mean, I still have my first business. I started in 81, which is a wallpaper business. Okay. So I, I don't, I seem to collect things, I guess, uh, more than anything else, but some of them do really, really good. And, uh, some of them just do okay. And, but if you put them all together, they do really super good, you know, and the ones that do just okay are very low maintenance. You know, I really don't even have to mess with them. They just are all, you know, sites that, you know, don't produce a lot, like fastpitchheadband.com. I don't do a lot with that site, but today I had a sale for $160, Hmm. you know, but I think it's the only sale I've had this week, you know, on that little website. But it produces sales here and there, and I don't have to do anything to it. I mean, except quick update once in a while, you know, and I use a dashboard that updates all my sites at one time, so it's not like I even have to go... The only time I actually go to the site is to print an order, which I don't mind going to a website when I print an order. Yeah, that's always a good thing when you when you have to do something that's related to you earning some revenue. Yeah, yeah. But for the most part, my stuff is very easy to maintain, and I have people that work for me that do, I guess you could call it the grunt work, you know, for that kind of stuff, working the storefronts, managing the stores. Um, like in the wallpaper store, I was in there today, but I hadn't been in there in two weeks until today. So I'm not real anal and real, um, one of those people that have to supervise really heavily. Mm-hmm. You know, I pretty much train people to do it. If they're not doing good, I get rid of them and get someone else that can, you know? And so I'm not over their shoulder all the time. They have to come see me every day, you know, in my office cause they got to pick up the orders or whatever their work is. And yeah. I talk to them then and. Yeah, if there's a problem, I can straighten up. So I don't think, you, and I think another secret of mine, Harry, is the fact that I, I only do things maybe ninety percent of the way. Okay. I never, I'm not a perfectionist. I don't do things a hundred percent of the way. I think that last ten percent may take you as much time as the original ninety percent did. And while if you're a perfectionist and you got to get that hundred percent correct, I think I can do a ninety and get another ninety maybe done before you get the hundred done. That's true. Yeah, so I think that's my secret is I, I, I'm definitely, I figured that out like a year ago. I was just thinking <laughs> to myself. And then I was talking to someone, I can't remember her name, from New Zealand last week, and she goes, oh, the 90% rule. And I said, oh, I didn't know that was a rule. And she goes, yeah, yeah, someone wrote a book about it. And I said, well, good. I'm glad I'm not the only person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they say that um, uh, perfection is the enemy of, perfect is the enemy of done. And a lot of people just try to get that last, you know, T crossed and that I dotted. And to your point, and they, they waste so much time in that final 10%. They could be using that brain power to create and come up with new ideas and let someone else be the finisher. Yeah, I think it's like we run, pod, Mitch Todd and I run Podcast Dallas over in Dallas, of course. And we've been doing that uh, maybe three, four years now. And it's amazing. There are still people there who've been coming for three years that you can say to them when you see them, Hey, have you got that podcast update? And you'll go, I almost got the outro ready. That's all I'm waiting on is to finish that outro. And I'm going, you don't even need an outro. Get it done. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. I but you know, I think the last podcast I started, the Gary Leland show, I didn't have an intro or an outro when I started it. And then about two or three episodes in, I finally did an intro. And about five or six inch, uh, shows in, I did an outro. But, you know, my saying really is you can't start improving until you start doing, yeah, you know, and so, you know, and, and podcasting, since we're, we're on a podcast subject for the most part, you know, I don't care if you plan like those guys are planning for three years for perfection 
RPO like me, you just throw it up there on the wall and get it done and over with and go about your business. When you look at that three years from now or two years from now or maybe just one year from now, you're going to look at it and say, man, that was terrible. Yeah. No matter how much you planned. So get the terrible out the way and start improving. Yeah, it's, I think it's it was interesting because you said you do have that OCD uh, mentality, but not enough to where it can just paralyze you and, and, and you feel like you probably have this internal uh, register where you, know, where, you, where you know what's enough, where you know what's enough to put out into the world. So it's not completely like a, a crap offering, but enough to people see that you took some time and you put some thought into it. And then it's enough to test the idea. Yeah, yeah. And then, because I think you can spend more time studying the idea than it does just to throw it out there and see what happens. Yeah. You know, doing this A-B test stuff, just throw it out there and do it. That's that's what I do. Yeah, you know, my wife always wants me to get this medication. You know, go to the doctor, and then I read somewhere that, that a lot of people, that took away their creativity. Oh. So I've said, nah, I don't even want anything to do with that. That's... I don't know what I do because I like coming up with ideas. Yeah. You, know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. A lot of times you see the wheel over there and you go, you know, I could take that wheel and put a microphone on it and a door handle, and I got a whole new thing that fits my needs. Because yeah, I really think everything's been invented. Yeah. I mean, the iPhone, the phone was invented, and someone just improved it. Now, you know, maybe there's that 2% of stuff that's so technical and scientific that none of us will ever invent anything like that. But the stuff that the average person's going to invent, it's all been invented. Now it's just improving. You're remodeling, improving, making better something that was invented already. Yeah, I, th I think it's really looking to and having that eye to see that sometimes if you make an incremental improvement in something, it's enough for someone to say, oh, wow, I, I, was, I was wondering to have this, this one thing and had this you know, other thing added to it. And, and like you said, it, it doesn't take a lot. And I think people just really want to be like Mark Zuckerberg. Right. <laughs> you and know, come they, up with, yeah, they want to. You know, there's a friend of mine, Paul Colligan. I don't know if you know Paul. Yeah, Paul's I, been on the show. Yeah. yeah, Paul's a great guy. I like Paul a lot. And I probably call Paul once a year and go, Paul, I'm stealing your idea. And he'll have made his idea for the podcasting or blogging world. But that idea would work great in the softball niche, which is one of my biggest niches, yeah. done as a softball uh, thing instead of as a podcasting thing. And I'll just basically copy his complete idea. I'm nice, and I call him and tell him, I'm stealing your idea, and I'm going to do a fast-pitched version of it. But, you know, I don't come up with a lot of my ideas. I get them from other people, you know? Yeah, it's all and in Paul, the Paul, I get a lot from Paul. It's all in the application. Yeah, I agree. So out of all businesses to start, why the wallpaper business way back in, uh, in 96 now, right? It, it was, no, that's when the website. Oh, the website went up. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I started it in 81. Yeah. Uh, actually, the, the wallpaper business, I moved to Texas in 79, and the wallpaper business started really as a mini blind business. In 1981, mini blinds, this is like useless information, but mini blinds had pretty much just been invented. Yeah. The one inch blinds. Till then, everybody had those big aluminum two inch blinds, which really are back in style, but in wood. But mini blinds were in style, and I'd moved to Texas, and Texas was having a housing boom like I had never seen before. I mean, you couldn't drive down to any street in Dallas, Fort Worth without seeing hundreds of signs. Houses this way, you know, like they put on the weekends with arrows and stuff. So my wife and I invested maybe $25 in an electric drill and uh, a sample color deck of color selections. 
And we and I made flyers. I we didn't have a computer. There wasn't anything computer. So we'd get a uh, paper and scotch tape pictures on it and uh, type up stuff and yeah. scotch tape out and she'd we'd print copies of those. And we'd print them at her work, to be honest with you, because printing costs a lot then even. Yeah. And we didn't have any money. And we'd take those out and we drive through a brand new neighborhood. And now it was, it was so much fun now in retrospect. I mean, it was so strong for our relationship. But we drive down into a neighborhood, a brand new neighborhood being built, and we look for houses that had sheets on the windows. Because if they had sheets, they didn't have they didn't have blinds for sure. They might have them ordered, but if we knocked on their door, they would understand why we chose them. Yeah. And we would uh do it on Saturdays and Sundays. And we'd find a street, and we'd walk down one side of the street. If they weren't there, we'd leave them a flyer on the door. But we'd hand them a flyer and talk to them, try to get in and measure, walk down one street, walk down the other street. We were making maybe 70% margin on these blinds. They were roughly $800 for a house of blinds. And we were doing, on a weekend, maybe eight, nine, ten houses of blinds. I mean, we were just young kids just rolling in it, thinking it would never end. We never thought many blinds would come out of style or that – Home Depot would carry them yeah. already made. You know, you didn't have to order them. We were going to Europe on trips. We were renting limos just to go to Dallas. I mean, you know, that's how stupid and young we were at the time. <laughs> that's great. And uh, we really, really had a good time doing that. And, they, and I, I remember one of the biggest arguments we had. I hope I'm not getting off this show. No, there is, there is no topic we, here. <laughs> we had, uh, I saw an answering machine at Radio Shack. It had tape, you know, a tape yeah. thing in it. And it was like $75. And I said, we should, uh, this, was, this was when we really started making money was when we got the tape machine. And I said, I think we should buy that tape machine. And then people could call us and we could answer the phone when we're not even here and set up appointments. Oh, I don't think we should get that tape machine. It cost 70, maybe it was 125. I can't remember. It was a minor amount at the time. Uh, at the time, it seemed like a lot. And anyway, I finally convinced her into doing it. So we recorded a message. She was into perfection, so it took a lot of time to get this message done. And I went out Sunday and left 25, 30 flyers, didn't even knock on the door. Monday night when we got home from work, we had like nine people had called wanting us to come over. And when we would come over and leave or when we walked down the street knocking on the doors, we'd walk out with a sale. People would go, I just want to tell you, Gary and Kathy, how thankful I am that you came by. I had no idea where to go to get this because they didn't. They weren't in Home Depot. Hmm. You know, so, I mean, they were thanking us just over and over about coming out and making money off of them. When did Home Depot come into business? Because you said this was... Uh, I don't know when they came yeah. into business, when Home Depot... Well, there weren't any Home Depots here. There were other kind of things. And Dallas is a big city, so Dallas Fort Worth. So I would think if there was Home Depot, then it would have been here. You had, like, payless cash waste and things like this, but they didn't have mini blinds. Because, number one, they didn't do custom blinds. That's a little... That was uh, at the time for a, a home store. That was a lot of work to try to do custom things. They were more off the shelf. And number two, they just didn't have stock blinds. Hadn't been invented yet. Yeah. You know, they didn't have stock blinds. But I talked to an old man who I used to buy stuff from, a guy named Bud Chambers, and he knew we were just cleaning up, and we were like excited every time we went on to pick blinds. He goes, Gary, he was an old. He's I'm sure he's passed away now because I'm an old fart now. <laughs> And he goes, Gary, I just want to let you know, I've seen this happen before when two-inch blinds came out. And I said, those old two-inch ones were yanking out of the houses? He said, yep. He goes, here's what's going to happen. He's going to start making those in China or somewhere and bringing them in here already to the size that people need. 
and it'll kill the market, so you better enjoy it while it lasts. I was like, oh, he's, he's crazy. But damned if it didn't happen exactly what he said would happen. You know, within, I don't know, 15, I guess by, by 90, 90, the business had really drastically changed. Mm-hmm. And we had a bunch of people working for us that were going door to door. And we had set up like territories for the salesmen. Someone had North Dallas, someone had South Dallas, someone had the mid cities, North Fort Worth, South Fort Worth. And they would uh, go out and we supplied them all their samples and we did the installs. We ran installers that installed for them so they could just sell. And because uh, I didn't want them wasting time installing, I can pay someone $2 a window to do that. I want them selling because I was taking 40% of the, of the net. You know, so I wanted them selling and we were still doing great. And then our top guy and two more people, which represented maybe $200,000, $300,000 worth of mini blind sales a month, quit and went into business for themselves. Mm. And we probably sold more mini blinds than anyone in the state of Texas. And, I mean, people were calling us from China to do the blind stuff. And uh, they, that was a definite hit in our wallet. It was about two-thirds of our business. Yeah. And that's when I told my wife, I said, this is never going to happen again. If we survive this, this is never going to happen again. We're going to move more into the wallpaper business. And that's when the wallpaper store uh, actually got more into play. So it, I say I've been in the wallpaper business, but it's easier to say I've been in the decorating business since 81. And the wallpaper store has been probably since itself has been probably since 91 that we were really a wallpaper store. You know, those wallpaper books, most people don't realize this. They cost $100 a book. Okay. You don't get those free. And if I got a thousand books in my store, which right now wallpaper business is slow, so I probably have six hundred, seven hundred books. That's a sizable investment in wallpaper books, and that's over a four or five year period you acquire those. They only make a hundred or two hundred a year. So even if someone tomorrow said I want to compete against Gary in the wallpaper business and move across the street, it's going to take them a long time to get enough wallpaper books to be competitive. You know, for someone to come in there and be competitive. Plus, we have tons of inventory, but. That's kind of the store story on the wallpaper business. Is it is the purpose of the wallpaper book for people to see all the different styles? Yeah, yeah, they stock all the styles in okay. there. We have a lot of inventory in stock, probably more inventory than anyone in, in Texas again. But uh, you can't, you know, every pat book has a hundred patterns. Well, it's just I'm just making up numbers, and there's a thousand books. You can't stock that much inventory, yeah. twenty four of each pattern. I mean, you know, I mean, no one could afford to do that. I, I think so. You have patterns in stock that you have picked to say, hey, these are the things I think would be most popular. I can get a good price on them. I can make a good margin on them, whatever your your reasoning is. And then you have the book library. And if some customers come in and then they won't even look at stock. They're like, I want, I don't, I don't want stock. You know, it's the same thing that came out of those books, you know, yeah. but for some reason they think that there's something special in those books. I was, and, I'm, uh, cur- I'm curious um, if, are there innovations in something that people think is like simple, like wallpaper? Like oh, at, over the time you've been doing it, have you seen things that have been innovative? There really has been innovative. Number one is um, right now in the last few years, they've come out with a York wallpaper has come out with a patent on a new product, which is called Easy Peel or something. And in the olden days, or with a lot of wallpaper still, you put them up, you have to really work to get it down. You get a wallpaper steamer or a wallpaper remover. With the easy release, it just peels right off the wall when you're done. And you can even take it and put it back up in another location. Oh, wow. So that's the biggest improvement. And the types of uh, methods of dye, you know, everything is digital now. Where it used to be these big metal rollers. And the paper actually went 
under the roller and ink was being dropped on top of it. And and some of the really like two hundred, three hundred dollar roll wallpapers done that way. And you can tell that the rollers don't match up perfect. The colors might be off a little. You know, like maybe the outline of the flower is black and the, the black's off a little bit. It's not exactly on detail. That's because it's going through different rollers. But now a lot of it's digital. So you could actually send I could do a pattern and say, you know, I think this would make a great looking wallpaper and send it in and have them recreate it and do it digitally for for me and have my own wallpaper line. Do you have uh, other designers that are getting into the game and higher price, like boot, you know, boutique style wallpaper because it's so fancy or it's a limited print or something like that? Well, most of the wallpaper are decorators and designers come to a store like mine, you know, okay. in a city this size. If you're in a small town, you don't have that option. You know, you have to order from somebody. But we have a lot of designers who come in and we'll give them, you know, our designer discount, basically, which still leaves us a nice margin. But this the repeat business over and over. You know, thing most people, Harry, know that wallpaper died. Yeah. I mean, you quit seeing wallpaper in houses. Yeah. Was in the nineties and eighties. The kitchen was always done, all the bathrooms were done, maybe the dining room was done, and maybe they did their master bedroom. I mean, you did a lot of wallpaper in the house and it disappeared. Most people don't know why it disappeared. And the manufacturers will even say this is not the reason, but it is the reason. There's no doubt about it. I've been in this business a long time. The biggest wallpaper company out there, the one that you had to carry, because if someone came in your door and said, do you have this? You had to say yes, or they would not come in. Mm-hmm. It was a company called Waverly Wall Coverings. And they made these huge, what are obnoxious prints now, but at the time, they were so popular. They went into Home Depots and Lowe's, and they were the ones that all the designers and decorators used. They were the cat's meow. They had the market. I don't know why they got so greedy, but they were the first ones to really go into Home Depot and Lowe's-type stores. And Lowe's and Home Depots, instead of giving 20% off like we did, started giving 50 to 60% off. And working on those low margins. Mm. Well, all of a sudden, interior decorators and designers couldn't make any money. They couldn't make any money off the wallpaper anymore. So if you can't make any money and you're making your money on kind of like the fluid in between what it costs and what you can get for it, you start doing something else. And they all started doing paint. Okay. Because there's no way to know what paint's worth. You know, the fancy paint, the scrolls, the rubs, the faux finishes. Those came popular overnight. And that's why, because decorators said, I can't make any money off wallpaper anymore. Home Depot has hoarded out, has made it a commodity. It's no value to it at all. And they started doing paint. And the paint business went through the roof. Everybody started having those kind of paint finishes. All the wallpaper stores in Dallas-Fort Worth, a city of five or six million people, went out of business. It's got for three of us. You know, we're all far away from each other. I'm one of the three, luckily. But now, Home Depot and Lowe's, guess what? They killed the market so badly, they got out of the wallpaper business. And, and Waverly went out of business. Wow. Because nobody would buy their stuff anymore except Home Depot and Lowe's. So Waverly went out of the business, the biggest name there is. And Home Depot and Lowe's quit carrying wallpaper. Now that they've quit carrying it, guess what? Decorators can do wallpaper again and make money. It's a lot easier to mess with than painters and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. wallpaper is becoming popular again. Everything is real popular. Everything is cyclical, right? And there's only three competitors in town. If someone even decides tomorrow, it's going to take them four or five years to be a main competitor. Yeah, you, you you've positioned yourself in a perfect place, and I, there's something to be said about 
like the, the fact that you stuck with it and this and the fact that you were just well positioned from the beginning and that you had this entry with with the blinds into the wallpaper and and i think it put you in a position to just to be more a, a be more solid business i guess to weather that that really big storm yeah like i said now wallpaper's holding its own but for years there the sporting goods part of my business carried the wallpaper business but now it's doing very good as a matter of fact uh, one of our podcasts is uh, about a TV show out of Waco, Texas called Fixer Upper mm-hmm. with a lady named Joanna Gaines and her husband. And she just came out with her own line of wallpaper books. Now, isn't that perfect for me? Yeah. I own a wallpaper <laughs> store and I'm doing a podcast about someone who comes out with a wallpaper book. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I probably sell more <laughs> her wallpaper than anybody in the country. Really? Yeah, because not only do I promote it on the page, on the podcast page. You know, we talk about it all the time on the show. I mean, that's our, our sponsor is us. You know, we do kind of an NPR talk. Anytime we see wallpaper, we tell them what wallpaper it is. You know, in the kitchen, she used this wallpaper. In the bathroom, she used this one. If you go to, we'll make a short link for it. And, yeah, we are just, yeah, we sell a lot of her wallpaper, as a matter of fact. Yeah, a lot, yeah, of, a lot of synergy there. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your thoughts on, on having a, a wife at the time that was game enough to go door to door and and try to get, sell this these blinds and talk a little bit about your relationship with your wife and how long you'd been married at that point. Well, at that point, we'd been married a year. I don't even know if we were married yet. Maybe we were still dating, but we were engaged. Maybe. I mean, you know, I had been a door to door salesman, most in home salesman, most of my life. My young life I was in high school. I worked in a mall managing a clothing store. And then I traveled the country with cable TV, um, setting up. Cable was brand new. Most cities didn't have it. And we'd go to, we went to Hollywood, Florida, Dawson, Georgia. And that's how I got out here in Dallas-Fort Worth is we'd come to new towns. They were setting up cable and trained door-to-door sales crews. And then we, we'd get it all going. About six months, we'd leave and go to another town. So I was very comfortable with doing in-home sales. Now, Kathy, my wife, she grew up. Her dad owned a radio station in a small town of 5,000 people. Now, when you're a radio station in a small town of 5,000 people, you're the janitor, you're the advertising salesperson, you're the DJ, yeah. you're pretty much the guy who goes out to the football games to cover the football games, you're everything. So she grew up in a sales-oriented house with her dad. I mean, he was like one of these people that read books continuously on sales. and He was like a way big-time marketer, but he did it in a commercial environment. So she fell right into it. Our biggest problem would be we'd be arguing in the house. You know, if we went, especially if we went in to install the blinds, because of what I told you, the perfectionist rule in her, yeah, the ninety percent are here. <laughs> you know, we'd be taking the order, and Kathy would go. This is a great example. She'd go. When I took an order, I go. I'd me- we both would measure it. No matter how we did it, we pretty much did that the same way. Except she was probably a little more accurate than me. And uh, we'd come in to say, "Your total job is nine hundred and fifty-two." Probably thought it'd be more, didn't you? We always said that because I had been taught that and shook our heads up and down. Probably thought that'd be more, didn't you? Shaking your heads up and down. Most people would go. If you do that, yeah. most people will go, yeah. They really will. They do monkey see, monkey do. And that's something I had been taught how to do. And so they so go, yeah, yeah, that, I did think it'd be more. Let's get it done. And we go, okay, and we do it. And uh, or I think we usually say, let's write this. Or we start writing it up. We always use the assumptive clothes and all mm-hmm. reality. We just start writing up the order. And just sign right here. And... uh that's it. I would be done. Now, Kathy, though, 
she would go, now, do you want those controls on the right or the left-hand side? Uh, and then they'd study it for five. Well, this one over here we want on the right. Maybe that one we need on the left over there. And then how about hold-down brackets? In case you open the windows and the wind's blowing, these brackets will keep them from swinging. Yeah, I guess. Are they free? Oh, yeah. Oh, we'll take those. When she got through with the job, there was so much extra work to do and more <laughs> chances for mistakes. Oh, wow. The manufacturer yeah. might forget to put it on the right side or the left side. So when I took a sale, they didn't get any choices. And we would argue about that all the time, all the time. And then when they'd come in, even if they didn't order hold them brackets, they came with them. Okay. Well, I would just stick them in my pocket. I didn't want to install all those in. <laughs> Not Kathy. She's wanting to put those brackets in there. They came with the blinds. They need to get those blinds. I'm kind of like going, they don't know they're in the box. Yeah. So they don't need to know. And yeah. then putting screws up to put the brackets up two screws will hold that bracket that i could hang on it at 300 pounds and it wouldn't come out she wanted all four screws in there and when the people would leave the room we'd be like <laughs> and then when they walk in the room we'd be all smiling yeah and, you know one time a funny story one time when verticals you know verticals of those blinds that yeah. go from top to bottom instead of side once you turn mm-hmm. customer said i want those new vertical we hadn't we didn't know what they were we're like oh no problem we can get those we'll be back tomorrow so we went and bought the sample kit and came back and ordered them. And I remember we put the first one in, and it was perfect. You know, like a quarter of an inch off the, the bottom sill. We put the second one in, and evidently we didn't mismeasure it. It was three inches too short. And the customer came in there and said, hey, these are too short. And I said, no, no, these are perfect. And he goes, well, those other ones are just a quarter of an inch off the sill. And I said, they're too long. And he, and he goes, he goes, well, I want these too long, too, then. <laughs> And so we came back like two months later with the correct blinds. I remember we were so embarrassed about it. But two months later, we finally came back and goes, I never thought I'd see you guys again. Because hmm. they owed us half the balance still. So they yeah. still owed us four or $500. So we came back and got those, put those blinds in. That was just, I don't know why. We still laugh about that and talk about that once in a while. We were going, no, those are too long. <laughs> Did you have a, any idea that that's who Kathy was when, when, you, when you first met her and you were recording her, that she, she would be that adventurous in that game for you? For what you had well, in store, yeah, I think uh, you know. I always dated women who were pretty strong. I grew up with a, I think, a strong uh, female model as a mom. You know, she started her own business, and she pretty much was. Pre- I, I always liked strong women. I remember someone I was dating back in South Carolina before I came here. I think I even told him, I said, you know, I like dating you because you can challenge me on a pinball machine, you know, or a video game. I have to really hump to beat you, you know, instead of just like wipe, you know, waxing you. And that's why I, I like the dating that particular girl. I remember yeah. telling her that. So, yeah, Kathy is definitely able to keep up with me. So I think that's what made me appeal to uh, her, appeal to me. And she's a, a strong go-getter, like I said, a little anal. But she's learned to calm down a little bit. And uh, I've learned to also – I probably changed more than she had, to be honest with you. Yeah. But I still do things about 90% of the way. What, you know, what's something it. that stands out for you that you've, that you've changed that, that was clear, like clearly a, a dominant – pattern for you earlier on i used to sit around a lot you know i used to i think i used to be one of those people that when i came home whatever time it was and it probably was at 5 30 you know when i because i worked for a company i did the blinds part-time at first i was like i felt like i needed to sit on the couch and watch tv and have a little downtime yeah. for some reason I, I think i learned that from my dad my dad was pretty lazy now that i'm older and i see the picture better and I think, and I, and I hear a lot of people that think that way, that I need some downtime. I just need to, you know, rest here for a minute. I just got off work. We've been sitting in the car for probably half an hour coming home. 
you know, so now I don't really have uh, downtime anymore. I'm pretty much doing stuff. If I'm sitting on the couch watching a TV show, I probably have my laptop in my hand, you know, tweaking a site or doing something. You know, I really don't surf the web very much, you know, like exploring. I yeah. do what I have to do. It's kind of a job. It's like Facebook. I really don't get on there and chat. I It's a job. Yeah. You know, stuff like, like that. Well, the key with Facebook is making sure you unfollow all the friends. You don't have to disconnect from them but if you unfollow you don't see their stuff and if you, i don't if, read my wall yeah. i don't care what's on my wall that's the secret just don't read your wall i don't care what's on my wall i never now kathy she reads if she looks at it today at four and in the at two she'll go back until she sees everything that was there from four o'clock today till two i don't even look at the front page at all that's funny i mean yeah i go there and strictly you know i have like 450 facebook groups maybe 10 pages you know uh, and i go there and I have a lot of work to do. It takes me a long time in the morning just to do all the things I have to do on Facebook, you know, as far as promotions. And then we have groups you have to pay to be a member of. Okay. Uh, like fourteen ninety five to be a member of my group. And if you mess up, I kick you out. It's about 10 months <laughs> to get back in. So, I mean, it's, uh, I, it takes me a long time. By the time I get through doing everything, it takes me about an hour. Yeah. The last thing I want to do is spend another half an hour on Facebook looking at it, you know. When I did you... When did you realize that Facebook was, uh, how quickly did you realize Facebook was going to be a, a tool for business? Um, right away. I got on it the first day that they let anyone mm. without a college email get on it. Yeah. So, I mean, I was on it the first day. I remember my wife was giving me a hard time. What are you doing on Facebook? That's for kids. I said, no, <laughs> no yes, it is. you're such a pervert. You know? <laughs> and she was one of those people we couldn't get on. And finally, me and the kids made her a Facebook page, and now okay. we can't get her off. That's so funny. Yeah. You, uh, I'm curious if you remember the names of any of those pinball games you used to play. Mm, I do not remember any of them. I, I I have no idea. Were they? Was it arcade? Pinball machines were different there than they than what you're probably used to. You're used to pinball machines with flippers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, pinball machines we used to play at the beach. There were some with flippers over there, but uh, like on the pinball wizard. But there were some that just you bumped. They had bumpers in there, and they the balls landed in holes on the table. It was like a big grid of holes, yeah, like a giant bingo card without the letters and numbers or anything. And you'd play that, and if you got a row of balls, you know, you would uh, win money. You know how did the how did the balls move? If there wasn't flippers to move the ball around the the board, you had to bump, like literally bump them. Or? No, yeah, yeah, bump the table. Okay, with your hands. <laughs> You'd bump the corner of the table, like where your flippers are, you'd bump the corners. Okay. You'd actually hit the machine to try to affect the bounce. And you'd, you'd, you'd actually shoot it the same way. You know, the ball was starting, you pull the spring thing and shoot it up. Yeah. But you kind of get so you know how far down you wanted to pull it. And there, there were people who were really good at it. And you got tickets, and you could take the tickets over to the window at the beach and cash yeah. it in money. Yeah. But you'd actually, it's more of a bumper machine, maybe, instead of it. But it was called a pinball machine. You well, know. Well, maybe that's why everyone, when, then when the flippers came out, people were just in the habit of like hitting the machine and and trying to still control the ball, even though the flippers were there. Yeah, yeah, and it had more bumpers than they have now. I mean, it'd be bumpers like in this, more bumpers. It was, yeah, yeah, but you had to get like five in a row or five in an angle, or maybe there'd be five holes that were special holes on the board. You had to fill up. There were different dimensions of it, but it was yeah, and you actually could make money. I mean, you know, yeah. do, do you do you miss any of those uh, simpler days? You know what I miss is I miss a lot is I grew up surfing. I was like on the high school surf team. Okay. And, uh, you know, I grew up out on the ocean on the island. And gosh, I surfed probably from the time I was in sixth grade till I moved to Dallas. I mean, 
and every day of the year. I mean, it didn't matter. We were out there before school in the morning, and then at 7.30, 8 o'clock, we would run to the car, put our surfboards on it, go to school and our bathing suits. School goes over, we'd head back out to the beach, put our wetsuits on in the winter. I loved surfing. I really did, and I do miss that. Um, you know, we would surf against other high schools, you know, like you'd play tennis against other high oh, schools. Really? We had surf competition. We had the high school surf team. We'd play other high schools and surf against them. You know, you'd wear different colored shirts and people would see how many waves you caught, the red team caught versus the orange team and how well they did on the waves. And I really enjoyed that a lot. That was a good lifestyle for being a young kid. With, what what city was that? I was in Charleston, South Carolina. Okay. I used to surf at Folly Beach. I lived on an island called James Island right off of there. But I, I do miss that. And um, what's your fondest surfing memory? Uh, two of them. One time, the waves where I grew up at were only four foot or so. So we're not talking Hawaii or anything, but you can have a lot of fun on a four foot wave. One day there was a tropical storm and it was blowing. When the wind blows offshore, instead of on, when it blows towards the shore, it flattens the waves. But when it blows out to sea, it holds them up. Yeah. And uh, one time I actually got, I got, I know that's not a big deal, but if you were in Charleston, this was a big deal. I got completely tubed. It was completely dark inside of there. I mean, the wave completely closed over me and it was total darkness. I never knew how dark it got inside of there. I mean, until you do it, you don't realize yeah. that. And then I was able to move up on the front of my board and come back out. And that was really cool. That was, but my biggest memory was there was this pier that came out, a fishing pier. Oh, it must have come out. Two, three hundred yards, huge fishing pier. And people all the time, their surfboards would get broken in half on that. You know, I knew a guy who surfboard, he fell off his board and it shot up in the air. Now they have these things to connect the boards to your ankles. Yeah. You know, so you don't lose them. Back then you lost your board. You had to swim away to the shore and come back out. But his board went up the air and this bolt holding the thing together went right through his surfboard. Wow. And so his board was up there with a big, giant, two inch wide spike right through it. Anyway, there was, I was on the look. If I was looking at the shore, the, the fishing pier was to the left of me. So the whole time I was surfing, I'm paddling to the right to stay where I'm at because it was a big current that yeah. day. So you're constantly, you're just sitting there paddling for hours against the current so you could stay in the same spot. Because if not, you'll be two miles down the street. Yeah. <laughs> and you really get in good shape and big shoulders and you're pretty good. That's why a lot of those guys that surf all the time are in such good shape. They're yeah. just sitting there paddling all day long. Anyway, I caught a wave to my left towards the pier, and I didn't realize it. And I was just cooking up and down. This thing was high. And I looked, and I was about 10 feet in front of the pier. And my choice was to jump off the board and lose my brand new surfboard. I just I got a new surfboard every year. I trade them an old one, buy a new one, and they let us pay them $10 a week. Wow. So I could either jump off and hope my surfboard didn't get broken in half. Instead, I stayed on it and went right through the pier. And it was called shooting the pier. No one ever hardly <laughs> did it. When I got to the shore, it was like I was Adonis, the god. All these people ran up going, you shot like I did it on purpose. Gary, I can't believe you shot the pier. Oh, my God, Gary shot the pier. It was the talk of the beach for the weekend that I shot the pier. Believe me, I wasn't getting up going, I want to shoot that pier. I just didn't want to lose my $160 surfboard. I'd had two weeks because I would be without a surfboard all summer. I couldn't afford to pay that one off oh, and wow. buy another it's it's so, that so was it's my so biggest in, memory. It's so interesting, like all the things that must have been going through your mind, and, and probably what was like a, a span of seconds, you know. And you yeah, had to yeah, make those seconds. split. I looked seconds. up and I was ten feet away, and I just got up on my board, you know, and uh, you know, and you're moving to left to right, you know, on a wave that size, you know, when you know the current was that bad. So between the current and of course, I picked the wrong way to go. I should usually on something like that, you would try to pick waves going to the right, so you could get further away from the pier. 
you know, without yeah. having to paddle. You know, when you got off, you might be 30 feet further, you know. But, uh, yeah, I remember that to that day. It was funny how it was funny how everybody thought I was just like, oh, yeah, someone had to do it. <laughs> well, there's this reckless abandon at that age, right? When just like, you know, I, I remember, you know, um, you know, when you're in your teens and maybe early 20s, you know, you just do things. And sometimes when you think back or you look back and you're like, as an adult, I think the the parent in you or the adult in you is like, I, what are you thinking? At the, or if your kids ever told you they did, you know, they did something like that, you'd be like losing your mind. Yes, uh, you're right. Uh, <laughs> you know, the parent in you would say no. But as a kid, you know, I think at least ways I know me and my friends, we were pretty much indestructible. We felt like, you know, we didn't think anything could uh, could do harm to. I remember one time there was a big tropical storm because if there was a storm, we were out there. Yeah. I mean, you can count on it because that's when the waves were going to get six, seven foot. That was your opportunity to surf big waves is when a tropical storm came up or if a hurricane was coming close and those winds were cooking up. But anyway, there was a big tropical storm and the waves were really out there. And it was winter. I had my full wetsuit on with gloves, boots. And uh, I fell off my board and my board went all the way to shore. And I mean, I got trounced in the water, just pushed under there by the Hmm. waves. And when I came up, my wetsuit was just filled with water. It had all come down my neck and stuff, and it was just tons of water that I could hardly swim with all the weight. And I swam. I remember this. They say I swam and I swam and I swam. I must have been about 16, 15. And uh, I'm going, man, I'm not going to make it. I really am thinking I'm not going to make it to shore. I'm wearing out. Uh, I never was a strong swimmer, but I was okay. I was yeah. good enough, but I'd never have been an Olympic-quality swimmer. And finally, my feet are starting to sink, you know, because I'm getting more worn out. And all of a sudden, I'm like going, oh, my God, I can't wait. But I remember I'm thinking I'm going to drown, and my feet touch bottom. Oh, I'm man. close enough for my feet to touch the ground. And I got up, and water was just shooting out of me everywhere. I took my boots off, and they were pouring out of me. I must have had a gallon, a couple gallons of water in there. It was kind of a weird situation. That it all are, they, are the new suits, like, built in a way that, that they don't allow that to happen anymore? I think they have dry suits now that you could actually wear clothes under there. Oh, wow. And you could get out and your clothes would be okay because they were starting to come out then. Yeah. But uh, then if you wore a wetsuit, it was really more for the wind. It wasn't for the water because the water came in through the stitches okay. pretty much and came in everywhere. So it wasn't for the, it wasn't for the warmth of the water. You still were going to freeze water-wise, but the warmer was the water was warmer than the air. Mm-hmm. And when you're wet sitting on a surfboard in the winter and that wind's blowing, which it would be during the tropical storm, it's cutting through you. So that's why you wore the wetsuit. So, so I got to ask, with podcast movement coming to Anaheim, are you going to try to get aboard and <laughs> you know, for old time's sake? Well, you know, when I went to Hawaii on my honeymoon, I did. Because I said my whole life I wanted to search, surf in Hawaii. Yeah, yeah. You know, and here I'm in Hawaii. There's no way I'm not going to surf. And so... On our honeymoon, went to Hawaii. Did I doubt I will in Anaheim? You know, now I probably could though, because I was six years ago about three hundred and fifty something pounds, and now I'm like almost two hundred pounds. So I'm getting, but I was like one sixty five or one fifty five when I surfed. So I'm still was what I would call heavy for surfing, but I'm probably more capable of doing it now than I was at three hundred and fifty pounds. But uh, I doubt I'll find the time to do that, and I. You know, I think surfing is one of those things here. They say riding a bike, you never get how, but I think if you don't ride a bike, my wife is an example of this. She rode a bike as a kid and she didn't ride a bike for 30 something years and she had a hard time riding that bike for the first time. She got it back. Yeah. But she had a hard time when she rode that bike for the first time. I think surfing is more so because of that balance needed. I, mm-hmm. I think you, 
I think that I think I actually would have a hard time, even though I feel I was a really good surfer. Yeah. I'm not gonna say I was a great surfer, but I feel I was a really good I feel like I could hold my own with most people on my beach at least ways. And I think the balance would be a, an issue for me now just from not doing it. And I think I'd be worn out, you know, for being out of shape paddling all the time. Because when the movies when you see surfers, they're just sitting around most of the time. Yeah. That's not really that realistic. Waiting I mean, for the wave. You know, not if there's good waves. You're going to be, you know, not just sitting around there all the time chatting, you know. One time, though, when I was surfing, and I was sitting around like that, even though I said that's not realistic, and pretty much I was away from everybody else. Everybody was about 30, 40 feet away from me. I was the only person, maybe 34, maybe 50 feet. I was the only person near me. Nobody was near me. And I'm just sitting on my board, minding my business, looking out towards the ocean for a wave to come. So, you know, when you see a wave come, you start paddling towards shore to catch it. And I turned to the left, and I fell off my surfboard when I saw it. There was a dolphin. I didn't know what in the heck it was because it wasn't supposed to be anything there. There was a dolphin with his head out the water just sitting there looking at me. <laughs> Scared the holy bejesus out of me. I turn around and there's something. You're not expecting anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and all of a sudden, here's this dolphin just sitting there looking at you. I'm like, holy cow. You know, and then he swam away. But one time we were walking down the beach and uh, when the tide goes out, sometimes there'll be little gullies, you know, yeah. of water that's gotten trapped. You know, because it's not always level, the water going out. And we were walking, you know, at low tide, the waves are not as good as at high tide. When the waves are coming into high tide is when it's the best. When it's going out at low tide, it's not the best. And so we were walking to the beach, and there was like a nine or ten foot shark in one of those gullies people were messing with, throwing rocks at and stuff. And we were just out there surfing. You know, and that guy had been in the water. He got trapped in the low tide. Yeah. You know, so there's a lot of weird stories. that I, I spent a lot of time out there. That brings up good memories just talking about it. Yeah, I imagine. Um, did you find that that was something that was, at the time, you probably weren't thinking that it was meditative, but you know, I know I've snowboarded a little, and there's been moments when you like totally zone out, and you feel like it's just you out there with nature, and I'm wondering if you had a couple of those moments where you felt yeah. like you were at peace. I think any time we went out there before the sun came up, which we did a lot, and on the East Coast, you know, the sun's coming up on the water. Yeah. So we would get out there before the sun would come up. It's funny, I didn't have an alarm clock. We were kind of poor. And uh, I didn't know we were poor until later in life, until I grew up. But we were pretty poor. I would tie a string to my big toe and hang the string out the window. And when it was time to go to the beach in the morning, Robert and Doug and them would come yank on that string and wake my ass up. And once I got tugged, wow. I got up and out the house really quick. Yeah. You know, because uh, I think I probably went to bed with my, my surf trunks on, you know. Yeah. And I wasn't putting a shirt on, so I was quick to get out to bed. But I would do that. But, yeah, we'd get out there, like I said, most days. If the tide was right, if the sun, if the tide was coming in, you know, because the tide changes like one hour every day. You know, high tide is an hour later every day, I think is how I remember it. So if the tide was coming in and like if at seven o'clock it was going to be high tide, yeah, we would get out there at 530 to catch that hour and a half before the tide started going back out. And so we would be there in the mornings for that. So, yeah, that's I'm telling you, there's nothing like sitting on the ocean by yourself. Yeah. And it's darkness everywhere, and that sun starts coming up. You know, I went to Hawaii, and we went to the top of some mountain on Maui. It's like the highest mountain in Maui. It actually goes through like five climate changes or something. Wow. It's so tall there. Most people don't think about that. I mean, you need a winter coat up there. I was freezing. Who takes a winter coat to Hawaii, <laughs> right? And we were just freezing up there. But then the sun comes up, you know, over the ocean. You see it come up over the ocean. Yeah. It's the first place in Hawaii that sees the sun. And it was, it was that same kind of experience, except there were... 50 people up there. Mm-hmm. And that's not quite the same as sitting in the water. But then I saw Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> and 
and, uh, and they talked about how sharks like eating in the dark. So actually, I don't think I ever night surfed anymore. Okay. Yeah, because we would go surfing at night sometimes, you know, and you just have the, the moonlight. The moon was bright. We'd go surfing at night. I don't think I surfed anymore after I saw Jaws. Most most people forget. I mean, I'm I'm uh, 47, so I I believe I saw it in a drive-in, and most people like don't realize how much that scared people. <laughs> Especially, it did. It, that was like the it, first it movie. Yeah. Night surfing. It was a scary when they talk. Oh, she was out there swimming. The first person to get killed is some gal swimming at night. I think. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah, that's yeah. right. That's the opening yeah. scene. Yeah, so uh, I quit surfing at night, though, but we still surfed in the morning. You, know, you couldn't give that up. What I, what I thought was interesting is they said you grew up poor, but you still, it's like that didn't stop you from having this rich life of, you know, with your friends and having fun. And so that the memories, you know, I'm sure you have more of the memories, not to put words in your mouth, but maybe more of the memories of, of, of the fun times you had because you were able to, to use your imagination and, and use you know nature in this case, but just what you had around you to entertain yourself. Yeah, I had a good childhood. Like I said, I think children, you know, because their knowledge is limited as to what really is going on in the world, you know, even though you, as an adult, if you were in that financial situation, you might be embarrassed if you were associating with someone like from the country club neighborhood. You know, I knew they lived in the country club, but I didn't realize they lived there because they had more money than us. You know, I just thought that was the name of their neighborhood, you know. So, but as an adult, I think you'd have a hard time and they probably wouldn't want to associate with someone in the in a economical class lower than theirs. But as kids, you don't realize that. I mean, or we didn't. Maybe some of the kids with money did, but I, I don't have a feeling that they, they didn't act that way. But uh, yeah, we we did a lot of surfing. We did a lot of, there was a lot of wooded lands. We would make log cabins in the woods. We had a three-story log cabin. We'd made it wow. over like five years. We kept working on it. We made another story. We had an observation deck, and we'd camp out in there at nights. Um, we know, had a, we, we, woods. we tried a treehouse. Well, we did a treehouse in my, in my backyard with our neighbors, and there was one plank that wasn't nailed down, and, and it was about 10 to 12 feet in the air, and I literally stepped on it, and then I just, I literally flew backwards, almost like a commercial, and I landed, in a, thankfully, in a pile of leaves, and I lost, you know, my, uh, my sneaker, and I never told my parents the whole story. <laughs> yeah, our but, log cabin was really tall. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, we, I guess it was a true log cabin. I mean, if I one day we went back there and someone had destroyed it, but I'm surprised we didn't have because the woods were filled with people who go coon hunting at night and stuff. You're not supposed to hunt at night, but they coon hunt at night because those animals freeze when the light hits them. Okay. And uh, I'm surprised we never had anyone come because we'd have a fire roaring and we'd be back there raising hell as kids. You know, we had guns though. We had our guns and our machetes and stuff, uh. so we probably could have defended ourselves pretty good. Now <laughs> I think about it, you know, because I think I got a. Gosh, I got yeah. My wife was asking me the other day. I think I got a BB gun. Maybe in like fourth grade, and by sixth grade, I had a twenty-two, and in eighth okay. grade, I had a 12-gauge shotgun, automatic shotgun. So we were heavily armed kids in the woods there. <laughs> we were heavily armed. I don't know that a lot of people can say that they grew up with guns and surfboards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> guns and surfboards, yeah. Those two really don't go together yeah. anymore. But yeah, well, when I grew up, though, we had a gun in every room of the house. Really? And even like the closets had guns. I think if you've got... <laughs> Someone came and robbed you and put you in a closet. Maybe, <laughs> maybe the thought was, we'll have a gun, a gun in there, so they tie us up and put us in the closet. We can get our guns. I don't know. Yeah. We had a gun, and and my mom had a gun on her nightstand, and my dad had a gun in his nightstand, and they were all loaded, all the weapons, but we never messed with them. I mean, you know, but I do remember because we seem to be just talking about stories that are interesting. Yeah, when I was maybe four, 
we lived downtown. This is before we moved to the island, down in what's the historic district. Now, my neighbor was Joe Maturo, and we were in my dad's car. He had, like, this big 54 belt Bonniac, Bonneville, you know, with those big wings in the back like you see on shows. Yeah. And we were messing with his car and looked in his car, and under his seat, he had a gun. I think it was like a Luger. And um, I don't know why I think that's what kind of gun it was. Like I said, I was only about four. So we pulled the gun out, and we were playing with it. And wow. I'm sure it was loaded if it was my dad's in the seat. And I told, and I had the gun in my hands, and me and Joe were playing. I said, we were playing Army. I said, Joe, you better get on your knees and surrender. I'm going to shoot you. And he goes, I'm not doing it. And I tried to pull the trigger because we thought it was a play gun, but the safety was on. Wow. Or it was too hard for me to pull because I was a little kid. So I am very blessed that I didn't kill Joe. You know, I don't know if I've ever told anyone that story, but uh, Joe ended up dying in high school uh, from something else. Not for me, (laughs) Uh, but that was such a weird story when you think about it. I mean, it's one of those cases where, you know, the kid you read about a kid getting a gun. So I was we never shot, never used the guns, Mm -hmm. but I definitely at that small age, I didn't know, you know, later. I don't think my dad had really told me about guns at that time yet, though. But when we moved into the house, since we all were having our guns, we knew what guns were. So maybe that's a lesson of how if you're going to have guns, you really need to make sure and tell your kids what they do and what's mm-hmm. a real gun and what's a play gun. You know, early, yeah, early, on, early on, right? Yeah, yeah. If you're, if you're going to have them out like under your car seat like my dad did. Who has a gun under the car seat, though? <laughs> Driving around in their car with a gun under the seat. <laughs> Times changed. Yeah, our, our family car when I was in high school was a car called a GTX with a 440 Hemi. I think it was the fastest production car engine ever made wow. uh, at the time. And that was our family car. And we would take it to the, my dad would take it to the drag strips on Friday nights and Saturday nights to race. And he'd win all the time because he had this car. I mean, matter of fact, in the new Fast and Furious, he's driving a GTX. Oh, uh, okay. That old car, he's the, that old muscle car he's driving. Yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's my family car. When you see this, if you see that movie and you see that car, you're going, that was your family car? That's the coolest family car ever. Yeah, because my son-in-law goes, Gary, didn't you tell me your dad had a GTX? And it was the only car we had. And I said, yeah, yeah, it was our family car. Is that, except ours was metallic blue, you know, instead of black like in the movie there. Mine, yeah. mine was a orange Ford Pinto. <laughs> yeah, not, not as cool as yours. Yeah, my dad, cool. I remember one time coming back from the racetracks. It was late at night and I must have been... 10 or 11 and we live like i said we lived on this island and went a lot of people on the island now it's covered with condos and people back then it wasn't and we pulled up to a red light and we were just waiting to go we were going home and it was on this long strip of wood and a cop car came up beside us and the cop car went boom 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 and my dad went boom 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 and i was sitting over here in a passenger seat we didn't have seat belts or anything. yeah they weren't even no and uh no airbags metal dashboards and the light turned green and us in the cop car, take off. What? My dad flew him away, pulled into a gas station. The cop car comes and comes in the gas station, and we all get out the car. I'm just a kid, and they're talking. What have you got under there? They're looking <laughs> oh under the hood, God. stuff like that. And then we go home. I remember that experience. That, dad, that would never happen today. <laughs> no. no. Now, you know, when I was in 11th grade, maybe, we decided to get a bottle of tequila. And we were going to go drink this bottle of tequila before the football game. Mm-hmm. And so we would get some, we would just go up to the liquor store and go, hey, would you buy us a bottle of liquor while you're in there? And people would go, sure, sure. Now, they wouldn't do that nowadays either, probably. 
And uh, we got it. So we want to bottle of tequila and we didn't know how much it cost. We just give him $20 and he bring it out and give some change. And anyway, we went and picked up a couple of people. There were three of us in the car, one in the front seat, th- three in the back seat, so five total. And we opened the bottle of tequila and I took a swig. I handed it to whoever was in the passenger seat and the cop light went off behind me. I'm like, oh my gosh, get rid of that. And he goes, what do I do with it? I said, I don't know. Get rid of it. We'd only had one sip, so I get out the car. Because back then, you got out the car. Yeah. And you went to the police instead of making the police come to you because you, they were a lot more courteous was the thing. Now, if you get out the car, they go, back in your car, sir. They're really, you know, and I guess they've been shot and attacked, and you can understand why for their safety. Back then, they weren't that worried about their safety. Not as much stuff happened to them. Anyway, he walks around the car looking at it, and he looks at the ground on the passenger side. Looks under the car, and my friend had just thrown the bottle under the car without putting the lid on it, and it's gump, 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 pouring out. And he holds up half a bottle of tequila, and he goes, a tequila, huh? And I said, yes, sir. And he goes, how far from here do you live? I said, I live on the other side of the school. It's about, he knew it was about three miles away. He goes, okay, why don't you drive, and I'll follow you, and let's go home. Oh, man. So he followed me to my house, took me up to my door. And everybody else got out the car because he didn't care about them. They got out the car and went to the football game because I lived across the street from where our destination was. And he goes, rings the doorbell. My mom comes to the door and there's me and this cop. And he goes, Mrs. Leland, everything's okay. You don't need to worry. But I did catch your son and held up my bottle of tequila, drinking this bottle of tequila. And I thought you could handle it a lot better than we can. So I wanted to bring him home so you could take care of this because I have a feeling that he's a good kid and you will make sure that he knows better than to do this again. And she was like, Oh, you better believe it. You know? So I did not go to the football game that night, you know, needless to say, but back then, and I feel that's a big problem today. Back then kids could get a second break. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I never got in any really trouble, but that could have been big trouble. And I think I was very lucky when I grew up that you could get in a little trouble. Yeah. I, the bottle had been literally open two minutes when we got pulled. Yeah. You know, we would have definitely made it to our destination to park the car, you know, because it was three miles away. But uh, nowadays, that would probably cost you ten to $30,000, you know, and it wouldn't be any option of the cop giving you a break. No. It just wouldn't happen. You know, another time I got a brand new car. I got a, remember when Mazda RX-7s first came out? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They were a hot little car, you know, when they first came out. And I bought one, and I was out here in Texas, and I was driving around, and I came up to this toll bridge. And the toll bridge was one lane in each direction, and it went over this lake, and it was just like maybe a quarter mile. When that gate went up, I floored it. I was gone. There was not a car on that bridge. I thought this was the greatest place to wind out that car and see what it'd do. The speedometer of the car, if I remember correctly, only went to 85 or 95 or something. Yeah. So, you know, like when I was a kid, speedometers went to like 140 and 160. Especially with, was, especially with GTX, right? Yeah. So... <laughs> After I drove across the bridge, I backed it down and went through some curves and got on the interstate and took a left and started heading down the street. And I'm driving. I'm a mile or two down the road. And there's this cop behind me. I'm like, what in the hell is this cop one? And I get out in the car and he goes, you must have been in a pretty big hurry back there. I said, what are you talking about? And he goes, on the bridge. I said, you were on the bridge? And he goes, yeah, I was sitting behind you at the light bridge. at the uh, When the thing went up, the gate went up, I was sitting behind you. And I said, oh, my Lord. I said, did you bust through the gate? You know, I was so, so again, going, did you bust through the gate? Come chasing me? 
goes, no, I just waited. And I said, well, how'd you know which way I went? And he goes, I just took a 50-50 shot. Wow. Yeah, you know, when I came to the end of the road, I had to go left or right. I went left, and I just lucked up. And I said, well, if I might ask, how fast was I going? Because I don't even know how fast I was going. And he goes, well, you were doing 105 in the 35. I said, oh. And he goes, and I'll tell you what, anytime you do more than 20 miles with a speed limit, I have to take you to jail. Yeah. I was like, wow. And he goes, and this ticket is going to be humongous because you're doing like 85 miles over the speed limit or what, 80 miles over the speed limit. And he goes, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm just going to let you go with a warning. If you promise me, we won't do it again. And I'm like, really? Okay. Yeah, I promise. And we had been talking and I was really courteous. And I'd use my coming out to the car to greet him. And I worked for a vending company at the time and he wanted to get in the vending business. And he asked me what I did. This is yeah. before he said he was going to be going. I said, I'm in the vending business. He goes, I always wanted to get in the vending. So we started talking. I mean, this police stop took 45 minutes. And then he finally said, well, I'm just going to let you go with a warning this time. And then he didn't even write me the warning. So I bet police have been good to me. Um, but I don't think they have that option anymore. I don't think they can give people breaks. Maybe I shouldn't have got a break for doing 80 miles over the speed limit. But there was no one there hurt except for myself. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't do it like on the street where there were tons of people. You know, I believe that people, I know it sounds crazy, but I believe people ought to be able to do whatever they want to do to themselves if they're not hurting anyone else. It's their self. I mean, you know, if you want to try to live to 105, you know, by when you're turning 85, spending all your money on everything you can to get that extra day. Or whether you want to go, ah, I'm ready to go. Yeah. I think that's up to you, you know. But um, do you think part of it is the, um, it sounds like those are police officers that were connected to the community and there was a, a, just more of a relationship back and forth so that they felt that they could do that with you. And then, you know, maybe they had sons and daughters and I think they maybe saw, saw things that way or saw things differently. Well, maybe they had done things like that when they were kids. That's true. Yeah. And the ticket, you know, I would have paid a ticket and it would have been a big ticket and, you know, my insurance would have gone through the roof, but I would have survived that. But I think the other one with the drinking at that age, if it was today, I think that would could, that could be life changing for somebody to be in that situation. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know? Like in the high schools here, if you get caught drinking, whether you're in high school or not, you're sent to a special school hmm. just for kids for a year, just for kids who don't obey the rules and. You know, there's people there who break into cars and who do drugs and everything. So if you were at a football game drinking a couple of beers and they found the beers in the back of your truck here where I live, it would change your life. I mean, the odds of it not changing your life are slim, mm -hmm. you know, and you really didn't do anything destructive. You weren't doing it on anyone else's time. You know, you broke the rules, but I don't know if the punishment fits the crime. And the, the, the thing is, at first, I made the rule you were kicked out of school mm -hmm. forever. If on Saturday night I had a beer and I was 17, I'd be kicked out of school. But then they changed it. You went to a special school. And to me, I just don't think the punishment, especially with the way I grew up and the things I did, I can see where I would be on the side going, wow, that didn't do that much wrong. I mean, it's like they can't even have facial hair in high school. I mean, because it's distracting. Oh, my God. How could it be distracting? That's a natural phenomenon that every man has. I mean, how could it be distracting? You yeah. can't have facial hair. I mean, that's weird to me. You know, rules are weird. I'm, I'm a rule breaker for the most part. It sounds like it. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like it's defined like the course of your life, though, like with the stories you're telling and, the you know, even just your approach to business. It sounds like it was never like the 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 road that most people traveled that was going to be your outcome. That's what I get the feeling. Uh, yeah. Oh. Well, my parents wanted me to be an electrician, not an electronics, an electrician. 
And in 11th and 12th grade, they made me go to vacational school two hours a day. You know, they had, um, they had closed. Uh, this was when integration was going on. We had a white high school and a black high school. Mm-hmm. And they closed the black high school and sent all those students to the white high school, which made it really crowded. I, I still to this day didn't know why they wouldn't send half and half. Just make a line so yeah. that, because the, the, I guess the part of the island that we would consider the black part was in the middle. So they could have cut it right down the middle of that, and half the black and half the white island mm-hmm. would have gone to one, and half the black and the other half the white would have gone to the other. But instead, they just closed it down. And that led to a whole other set of problems. But that left the school empty. And they said, let's make it a vacational school. And mm-hmm. then you'd leave maybe in fourth period, go over there for two or three hours, then come back for sixth period. And they wanted me to – matter of fact, I forgot all about it even, even though I spent so much time there. And I found uh, in a Bible of my mother's, my certificate that I was a apprentice electrician <laughs> as a graduate from Gresham Mega. It's funny. I never even applied for the job as an electrician. I probably could have got a job yeah. right out of high school and got a decent little job. And I didn't even think it never even entered my mind to apply to be an electrician anywhere. But to this day, I still went up to my daughter's house last weekend. They just moved uh, into a new house and I redid all their lighting for them. They bought all this lighting. So you see, I never did, had to pay for an electrician. For, it, did, it did come in handy. Yeah, I mean, I've never paid to have an electrician come over to my house, you know, so it has come in handy. But yeah. it's funny, that, that was our goals for me. My dad was a manual laborer, a welder, and he never made it above being a first-class level welder, mm-hmm. you know. Well, it seems like um, there's this aspect of, you know, you getting into all these businesses that you have now. Can you recall, like, if there was someone that you looked up to or, or who was a mentor in terms of your this idea of you wanting to, to be in business or be in sales? I, I I can't. My grandfather was in sales, but you know he was an insurance salesman. It's kind of weird. My grandmother was a school teacher, and my grandfather was an insurance salesman. And then their daughter quit college to marry this guy in the army, who was a blue collar worker. Yeah. And so, no one's alive now for me to talk this, but I know my grandparents always hated my dad, and I think they probably hated my dad because you know being thinking their daughter was going to go to college and being a white car worker instead mm-hmm. maybe they felt like we had dropped down a notch in the social you know status instead of moving up which everybody wants their kids to do better than them yeah you know so um but i know they hated my dad so i figured <laughs> that's why they hated him you know because and and like i said the goal is for us kid my brother went became a manual laborer my Sister became a secretary at a manual place, you know. I remember he made me go out to the naval shipyard where he worked and my brother worked to fill out an application. <laughs> and I just went in. He had to take a test. He okay. made me go out there when I graduated high school and take this test. And I remember I didn't want to work out there. I saw him come home every day all burnt up from being a welder's clothes. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to come out there. So I actually failed the test on purpose. And he, he came back and he goes, you know, a couple of days later, results came in. He goes, I checked on your results and you failed. He goes, I don't know how you could fail. You're the smartest kid we got, and I even passed that test. I said, oh, I don't know. It was kind of hard, Dad. <laughs> you know, and then, uh, you know, so, yeah, but that was the goal for me. If we could get on, that's how they put it. We can get you on there yeah. at the shipyard. You'll be doing okay. But I, that's not what I – I did my first business probably, though, when I was about, I don't know, seventh grade. I used to go up to the golf course. I would buy canned sodas for six cents. And we didn't have a cooler. I, I don't know. I know they'd been invented. Maybe we couldn't afford them. I'm not sure. 
but I would buy canned sodas for six cents and put them in the freezer and freeze them overnight. And I'd have a loss of ones that busted open, like two or three cans. But now I'm going, why didn't I have a cooler? <laughs> and, but then I might have had to buy ice, you know, so that had been another step. Yeah, more complicated. So then I would take those Cokes out to the golf course and go out to like the 16th hole, which was the furthest away from the clubhouse of any of the holes. And I'd sit there and sell them for a quarter. And I'd, I'd run out every time I went out there. Every Saturday and Sunday, I'd run out. So that was my first job. Was, uh, and then I, brought, I was bored out there, so I brought a friend. I remember this, a friend. And I said, hey, I'll let you sell like Lance crackers. You can buy those. And I could have sold them, you know, and added them to my inventory. But I wanted someone out there with me, so I'd sell the Cokes, and he'd sell the Lance crackers. And he'd sell the crackers, but he wasn't making near the money I was making. Yeah. And uh, then after we did it a few months, I found out he was on the 14th hole selling coats. <laughs> so it was the first time I'd been screwed in business you know, was by my partner who was, uh, or my working associate decided he would sell Cokes and Lance crackers on the whole two holes before me. Well, that's an important lesson to learn early on. So then you, you always keep your eyes and ears open for people that be, be, be one step ahead of your competition, I guess is the lesson there. Or watch out how well you train your competition, <laughs> future competition. Well, Gary, um, this has been amazing. Um, I love that these conversations... But this is the first interview I've ever done like this. I mean, you know, we really didn't talk about podcasting. Yeah. I, I had no idea that this is where this was going to go. Yeah, I think it's just it's just stories. You know, people relate to stories, and, and that's really what I've always wanted the show to be about. And I, I know you have a, a rich history and, and stuff that I didn't even know about you, and, and I hope the, the listeners got a, a little bit of a, a, a insight into you and what it was like growing up because growing up, because I think all of those little things in, you know, when you put them all together, they really formed who you've become as a person. Right. I, I agree with you there. And, you know, even though I was wild, I'm not very wild anymore. I didn't make it to 62 and hopefully I'll make it further. But, uh, yeah. you know, I still believe it's easier to ask for forgiveness than it is for permission. Yeah. <laughs> so I do walk that side of the fence a lot. I will, bend the rules as much as possible, but I don't ever break them, you know? And if someone says, Hey, you broke the rules. I go, well, I won't break them again. Yeah. But I will true. bend the rules. I will, I will test the rules. You know, I, I can be honest and say that. Yeah. The rules will be tested by me if I'm at something and they say, here's the rules, you know? So, but I, I win a lot of games when we play board games. Cause I, <laughs> rules, I that's something to keep in mind. Maybe, maybe we'll get a board game night going at podcast movement. Yeah, yeah, I used to play a lot of board games. Huh? What's your they favorite? Used to call me, they used to call me Milton because <laughs> I used to win. So, you know, I used to play chess. I started playing chess in like third grade. Really? And I picked up on chess really quickly. Uh, my dad brought it home. He didn't. You know, he never had a shot because I picked up on it so much faster than him. And I played men in the neighborhood and I'd beat them by fourth hmm. grade. I was beating about everyone in high school. I was president of the chess club and I even played Bobby Fisher in chess. Really? Our, yeah, our chess teacher knew Bobby Fisher. Wow. And I beat Bobby Fisher in chess. He played our whole classroom, like our whole chess club, like 40-something of us at one time. And me and William Patterson beat Bobby Fisher. That's, that's a pretty big uh, thing to hang your hat on. <laughs> this thing that he had on. People at work here still don't believe me when I tell them that. I don't tell many people that. Because most people think that's kind of hard to believe. But yeah, yeah Mr. Sullivan was a teacher's name, the head of the chess department he was like the only time i made straight a's in english was in his class in 10th grade but i, I don't think bobby fisher was the big name mm -hmm. he became i don't think he was the world champion yeah. yet at the time you know but he was definitely 
a great chess player and he was in South Carolina speaking or something. And I think Mr. Uh, Sullivan went to the event and talked him into coming and playing the chess club after school, you know, but of the room, all the ta- desks were in a big giant circle and you make a move and then step over to the next yeah, desk, make, yeah. a move, make a move, make a move, make a move and just, you know, and I just loved it. I mean, I used to play at the level where I could go, Oh, you're using the Russian Queen's Pawn opening, eh? I mean, I would read books about it. Whoa. I mean, I was really, really... As a matter of fact, we were on a cruise about 10 years ago, and I haven't played in years. And they had one of these big, giant chess boards on deck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, big, the giant ones, yeah. And there's this guy over there playing, and he's playing mostly kids. I said, oh, I'll go play and see if I saw it. And he goes, well, I just want to let you know I'm ranked something. And I go, I don't, I don't know what that means. Because I didn't. I said, I, I don't know what you're saying to me. Whenever someone says something I don't understand, I just am blind. I don't know what that means. And he goes, that means I'm really good that I've played and my points I've mastered, I've become at this level. I said, oh, okay. And so I know that my mind does not work on chess like it used to, that I cannot handle and see seven moves ahead. Okay, I'm going to do this. He's going to do that. I'm going to do that. You know, plan it out. Yeah. So... I get rid of every piece on the board I can get rid of if it's an even trade. I just go for trading pieces off. So there's only four pieces left. I figure with four pieces, I can handle where things are going to go. Mm. And I end up getting the guy to a stalemate. Okay, this guy is like such an ass to be telling me that. <laughs> and then here he can't play some guy who hasn't played in 30 years. He can't beat me. I didn't beat him either. Yeah. But I could have beat him. And as soon as I missed the move, I said, damn, I'd have beat you if I'd have gone there. I knew it as soon as I missed it. And so I could have beat him, but I ended up with a stalemate on the guy. Neither one of us were going to win. And uh, I just remember that was so fun to beat him, or not beat him, but to do that to him. Did he, acno- did he acknowledge that, you know, the, the quality I, of the player? I think he was kind of an ass, to be honest <laughs> with you. I mean, yeah, I think he was an ass about it. He was an ass to begin with. Yeah. You know, who, who does that? Someone comes to challenge you in a game. Was that his mental plan that he could break me mentally? I mean... <laughs> I mean, I think he must have been lying, and he wasn't all that, you know, whatever he said he was. Because here I'm a guy who hadn't played in 30 years. Yeah. You know, and he was stupid enough to let me just take all those men. I, you know, that was the only way I could possibly see winning is not having any men on the table to keep up with. That's his, yeah, that's his ego at that point, trying to mentally uh, influence you right b- before you even start playing. Yeah, I guess. But, but that was a funny chess story to me. But, yeah. Seems like uh, you've probably got another... 20 or 30 stories like that. <laughs> I snuck into the World Series when it was in New York. I snuck into the Super Bowl and Super Bowl 20 was in Chicago. Okay. I snuck into the party with the Chicago Bears after they won the Super Bowl. Really? I, my friend and I in the party. I've done a lot of crazy things. Oh, man. I snuck into after the World Series. We went to the Diamond Room, you know, and in the room is Mickey Mantle, Tommy Lasorda, all these people we're hanging out with wow. in this party we snuck into. So, but things were different back then. Yeah. You know, you could sneak into stuff like that. You could do stuff. Snuck into the final game of the final four. That used to be me and my friend Mark Angeli's thing is we would like to sneak into sporting events. That's almost impossible now. Yeah. Well, you still can do it. Like, for instance, at the final four, this was years ago, but this would still work. Um, but, but yeah, it, our WEF method would work totally. You just walk up to like uh, World Series, tickets were 35 bucks back then to the World Series. And we just put a $50 bill in our hand and walk up. And the first person we walked up to, the first ticket taker, took it. Made like he tore it in half. And made like he handed us a receipt. 
Mark walked behind me, did the same thing. Next night, we found another ticket taker because we didn't, that one wasn't working. First ticket taker, did it again. <laughs> final four. That's how we got in the final four. You just show, you just walk with that bill prominently. Yeah, displayed. just hand it to him yeah. like you're taking a ticket. And yeah. usually, I think if you've got an old guy that he's been there long enough to know. Yeah. So I think you can still get in that way anywhere. You just got to do, you know, ticket value is 35. So 50 was way over ticket value. But if you hand the money, most people are going, wow. And some people go, wait a second. A young kid would. But an older guy is going to go, wow, I just made 100 bucks. Yeah, yeah. that's cool. Yeah. You know, so they'll let you in. Finding a seat's a different story. But you can get in. We're getting all sorts of wisdom. And I want, I want someone maybe to try that and <laughs> report back and see if that's – I, I, would, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't understand. I, I can't see we why that wouldn't work. We bought tickets to the Rolling Stones one time at Cotton Bowl. <clears throat> And the guy said, oh, they're great tickets, and it was dark. We got in there. We bought them. Didn't spend a lot of money on my wife. Fine. They were terrible seats. We thought they were on the floor. We went to the floor. And he goes, oh, no, your tickets aren't on the floor. They're way back there in the end zone. I said, gosh, who I said, I'll give you 20 bucks if you let us on the floor. The guy goes, okay. Wow. So 20 bucks out, and you let us on the floor. People like money. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, and sometimes it doesn't have to be a lot of money. Yeah. And he, I remember he goes, I thought it was 20 bucks a piece. And I said, no, I never said that. He goes, oh, okay. Yeah. So. Yeah, they won't push you on it. Yeah. So, and then on the floor, no one was in their seats. Yeah. You know. So, but like I said, it's a matter of finding the person you think will do it. If you go up to a young kid, they probably aren't going to do it because they're scared they're going to get in trouble. Yeah. By the time they're a seasoned pro and they've been doing it a while, they know nobody's going to catch them. You know, and they've probably done it before. At the end of the day, it's almost like no harm, no foul. I mean, that the the. The venue's not losing money. This person's making money. I mean, you're there because you're a fan. You're going to buy stuff there, food and drinks. And it's just like, you know. Yeah, that's a, how I look. I mean, there are people yeah. who would have another side of that, I'm sure. Yeah. You know, but uh, that is not fair. And there's a lot of people worried about being, things being fair. I, I believe in Abraham Lincoln's uh, saying is the things that are left to he who wait were left by those who hustled. I think that's, a, that's not exactly, but that's really the gist of it. And I'm pretty close. I think that's a great saying. You know, if you wait around for it, you're just going to get what the people who hustle left behind for you. Because there are always going to be people who hustle. That's so There's true. always people who don't hustle. That's so true. And, yeah. And so the government can't take care of everybody. So the people who hustle are going to get their fair share. Well, I, I think that's a pretty good bow to put on this <laughs> on this conversation because it almost encap- encapsulates like the the way you know the way you've lived your life and, and and how you've made opportunities for yourself as opposed to waiting for someone to hand them to you yeah yeah i um but I, when you get down to it i just like making stuff and creating stuff you yeah. know i really do i used to want to be an artist when i grew up i think four years of art and that didn't pan out i never knew and people Kept saying, what are you going to do when people don't want mini blinds anymore? I said, I don't know. I'll figure something out. And I kept, did. I've had, we have, I took, my wife and I were talking last week about how many times I've reinvented the business. You know, uh, you know, something starts dying out. I reinvented it to make more money. Yeah. You know, like the what, mini blinds died. I did wallpaper. Then I got into, the only reason wallpaper is still in business is because we were on the internet, one of the first wallpaper stores on the internet. You know, and that's, or we would have been one of those stores that closed. So I think that's the key thing is, You've got to be able to see the bigger picture and know how to make changes, stay in business. And it's like right now, the stores that didn't get on the Internet went out of business. Mm-hmm. I think the stores that don't learn how, how to use social will go out of business. Yep. You know, that's happening now. There are stores learning how to use Facebook, Facebook Live, social that are growing. And there are stores that are going, 
I'm not a member of that. I know there's a billion people on there, but I just don't think that's very much. It's, on not, there. it's not for me. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're the ones that are going. That's what I always say when someone says, nah, I don't have an account yet. I said, yeah, there's only a billion people on there. It must not be too good. <laughs> well, yeah. Like you said, they're, they're, they either have to participate or they'll be left behind. Yeah. And I think that's the generation or not generation, but the next big left behinds are the people who were not able to comprehend and understand social, whether it's Facebook or whatever. Just Facebook's a big part of it. Yeah. You know, so as far as getting to your people. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to catching up with you again in Anaheim. Uh, was a yeah, I enjoyed this. A pleasure seeing you in PodFest. And I, and I think um, when people first hear your name in the podcasting community, they, you know, they, they have a certain mindset about you being a, a, a you know, you're a pioneer in, in podcasting. But I think you became a pioneer there because you saw early on the opportunities and it just speaks to what you've done throughout your whole life, like looked for opportunities and just podcasting was another um, venue or, or, or another channel that you, you saw the the potential for early on. Right. Right. And, uh, and, and, you know, I've always tried to be pretty upfront, not, you know, some people are embarrassed to tell stories about like how they snuck into places or how they would have got caught drinking. Yeah. I don't think you can be embarrassed about what you did in life. I mean, no. that's who you are. You know, you don't necessarily do that anymore. I don't drink and drive. Yeah. But I did drink and drive when I was 16 one time. But that doesn't mean uh, that someone's bad. So I think if people can accept themselves, their press and present, press, present and past, no matter how bad their past is, it's like I truly believe that if you go to jail, when you get out of jail, you should get a fresh start. You served your time. Yes. I'm a real big believer in that. Yes. Not that I do anything with ex with cons or ex cons, but I believe that when I see someone telling me, "Oh, well, this guy did this," I'm going, "That has not not that much to do with it. He served his time yeah. for drinking and driving. This is for something completely different." He paid his dues. You know? Yeah, he's paid his dues. He should be able to get a job. I'm real big in that. So I think people should be able to accept what they are and not have to hide what they are, what they did, or be embarrassed about what they did. I'm pretty straightforward on what I do. My wife has a heart attack because of things I tell people. She goes, I can't believe you tell someone that. I go, why? That's part of who I am. I mean, it's not like I'm doing it now. Well, know? I'm sure she'll enjoy listening to this episode. <laughs> yeah, she, would, she might learn some things she didn't know. I don't think she knows about the drinking and driving. <laughs> well, I'm happy to, to, to be a little time capsule in your life. Um, well, I enjoyed this. This was a yes. nice conversation. I, I enjoyed it. I, I've never refused to be on an interview because I think that's the best marketing there is. Yeah. I mean, bar none. I wrote a big blog post a couple of months about it. So I always accept any interview, but this was actually a very fun interview instead of doing the same thing over and over, just talking about, you know, how to podcast, how yeah. to start, or blah, 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 blah. You know, this was kind of exciting. Yeah. I enjoyed this. I, I really appreciate it, Karen. I think. Yeah, because I told you an hour, and here's been an hour and 20. And <laughs> so I must have enjoyed it. Yeah, it's a good time. Um, you know, it's just stories. It takes us back. It's the most, like, uh, human thing you can think of, even going back to the cavemen. It's like around the campfire. I mean, that's that's literally where the stories start. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, uh, again, I appreciate you. And, and uh, if folks want to continue the, the, the storytelling with you or engage with you, what's the best place for folks to track you down online? Uh, go to GaryLeland.com. Okay. I do a lot of posts about what's happening with me there. Um, usually every post I make on my blog is about something I'm doing marketing-wise or something that's happening to me. It's, it's not really about, like, the stories like we just told, but it's more personal things that I'm doing you know, through marketing, like I've been working, trying to get H home and garden TV to notice. Yeah. yeah. So I did a lot of blog posts on that, which has been working very well. Um, so it's just things that, 
are affecting me, but they may be examples that you can use, you know, to do something for yourself. Yeah. Do what I do with Paul and say, hey, take, I could take the idea. Very cool. Yeah, well, we'll send people that way. We'll have a lot of uh, links in the show notes. And uh, again, thank you again, Gary. I think it's always interesting because the whole point of the show has been to, to tell the story of, of the person behind the microphone because to your point, Nim, you've probably said almost everything you'd want to say about your history in podcasting. Um, but there's other stuff that rounds out people and makes them more human. And I think that's a lot of what we covered today. Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed it completely. Thanks for your time. Thank you for having me on. So not much else to say there, just that <laughs> what an amazing conversation. Again, I, it, I mean, I, there was so, it, we did a video Skype, so I'm just sitting there watching like my mouth is open and reacting and you can see that he's getting into it. And, and, and part of it when the, when the sound is low is him stepping back, relaxing and sharing stories that he hasn't shared before. So it's everything a podcast, podcaster could dream about. And I'm just uh, so honored that he came on board. Stay tuned next week. We are back on track with episode 129. Lee Silverstein, another amazing human being uh, doing great things with his podcast. Again, we uh, another conversation from uh, PodFest. So that's coming up. We're back on track, but I just wanted to have this opportunity to sort of celebrate wins, which is something we don't tend to do a lot of. I know I, I tend to overlook them and I didn't want to do it this time. So again, thank you. I know I said a lot in the intro, but just again, from the bottom of my heart, uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for continuing to listen. And I'm honored to have you as part of the Podcast Junkies family. If you haven't already, join us at Podcast Junkies Junkies on Facebook, my group just for listeners of the show. And not a place to spam stuff. Just saying. Love you guys.